January 28th, 2000 was a bitterly cold night in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. The high that day was a measly negative 18.6 degrees Celsius, while nighttime temperatures dipped down another 10 degrees on the mercury. But it was an evening that Daryl Knight will never forget. You see, it was the night two Saskatoon police officers picked up Daryl in their police cruiser and deposited him outside the city, nearly two kilometers away from the Queen Elizabeth Power Station. Luckily, Daryl knew the area and was able to make his way towards that power station. He banged on the door, allowing a security guard to bring him inside and warm up. Daryl was fortunate in this way. He survived. Other victims of the so-called Starlight Tours weren't so fortunate. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. To grow up on the prairies as I did is to appreciate the cold in a way that few people will ever understand. Yes, your nose hairs will freeze the moment you step outside. Yes, you will be wearing so many layers that it becomes difficult to move your extremities. But there is a certain bliss to be found in that frigid landscape. On my wall, I have a print of William Kurilek's home on the range. Kurilek's parents were Ukrainian immigrants who settled first in Alberta before making their way to Manitoba. This print, which I will post on the Canadian Disasters Instagram, reminds me of long prairie nights, of seeing snow stretch out for miles underneath the light of the moon, the sense that space and time could go on forever. Crucially, I also understand the privilege I have here. The cold is pleasurable only because I know there will be a warm space to return to when I'm done. I have never had to worry about frostbite or hypothermia. Indeed, I really only thought about those things growing up as ailments that were subjected to mountaineers and adventurers. The same brutal winters that I memorialize also have a history of being used to harm. There are, unfortunately, recorded instances of the cold being used to kill. The term starlight tours refers to a practice whereby supposedly drunk people, usually First Nations men, are driven a few kilometers outside of town by police and dropped off, only to be told that they must walk back. Most of the time, the victims are improperly dressed for the elements. There is some historical basis in the Starlight Tours. It seems to have begun based on vagrancy laws in Saskatchewan, whereby, quote-unquote, vagrants would be picked up by police and deposited far outside of town so they wouldn't return. The first notice we have recorded of an example of a Starlight Tour comes from October 18, 1976. A bulletin was posted to Saskatoon Police after three Indigenous people came forward detailing how they'd been dropped off by two officers some kilometers outside of city limits and forced to walk back to town. One of those victims was a First Nations woman who was eight months pregnant. All were dehydrated upon returning to the city. The woman was determined to let someone know 
what had happened to her. Other than the accused officers receiving a fine, nothing much else was done. Relations between First Nations in Canada and the authorities have long been fraught with tension. There are countless accounts of racism throughout the provinces and territories, most notably at the hands of police officers and the RCMP. In many cases, Indigenous victims of crime are not given proper counseling or resources, and in many cases will receive inadequate investigation. Saskatchewan as a whole boasts one of the highest rates of incarceration in North America. Indigenous men in Saskatchewan are also more likely to end up in prison than they are to graduate high school. These are sobering statistics. The atmosphere within the Saskatoon Police Department was not great in 1990. Many officers and cops complained that the top brass were more interested in things like the press of a cop's collar or the shine on a uniformed officer's shoes than they were about performance metrics. The force had grown smaller over the preceding decade, and cops were being pulled in to handle increasingly dangerous situations. There were many nights when the city's jails were packed to the brim. Neil Stonechild, 17-year-old Indigenous boy, had sometimes been in those city jails. He was known to the police for various minor indiscretions and was currently on the run from his group home. But Neil was also a loving, kind soul with the heart of a warrior. He'd been a beloved member of his wrestling team, the Wolverines, and was absolutely adored by his family and friends. On the night of November 24th-25th, 1990, Neil had decided that he was going to go out for one more night of fun before turning himself in and turning his life around. A few weeks earlier, he had begged to be allowed to head to either Manitoba or Ontario to be with one of his siblings. Both siblings argued that Neil couldn't just run away from his problems. So finally, Neil agreed that he was going to write himself. His mother Stella and his group home Gera, Patricia, remain adamant on this point decades later. Neil was ready to start over that night. But before he could, he met up with a friend, Jason Roy, carrying a bottle of liquor given to the boys by Neil's older brother, and together they made their way out to a nearby house party. Neil's older brother remains haunted by handing over that bottle. One thing led to another at the house party, and Jason and Neil were pushed out onto the frozen doorstep and told to go procure snacks for everybody else. Shivering in their few ill-equipped lairs, the two began walking down towards the 7-Eleven, a common stopping point for many indigenous youth of the day. Once they reached it, the two began clowning around in the aisles to the point that the store owner actually phoned the police to complain about the disturbance, naming Neil. Not wanting to be caught, Neil and Jason hastily made their exit and tried to figure out what exactly they would do next. Neil was determined to go to the Snowberry Downs apartment complex, where he knew his ex-girlfriend was babysitting. Neil was still a little bit hung up on her at the best of times, and the alcohol he'd consumed turned this little bit into an overwhelming urge to see her. 
Jason thought this was a bad idea and tried to convince Neil not to go looking for her. A brief argument ensued, and Jason ended up tripping in the parking lot. By the time he got back on his feet, Neil was gone. As police officers roamed the city on the lookout for Neil, his cousin, Bruce Glenai, was pulled over by a cruiser. You see, Bruce and Neil were cousins, and they were often confused for one another. So Bruce got his ID checked and his name punched into the mobile database in the car. He was then free to go. Neil made his way to the Snowberry Downs, and once arriving, began drunkenly banging on every door, looking for his ex. Once he pounded on the door where she was staying with her new boyfriend, the ex asked her new boyfriend to phone the police to take care of Neil. This is an action she, too, will later regret. Shortly before midnight, Saskatoon police officers, Larry Hartwig and Brad Sanger, made their way to the apartment complex where they found Neil. They make no note of picking him up. A few minutes later, as Jason was walking the streets, he spotted Neil in the back of a police cruiser. Neil was now sprouting two bloody gashes across his face. There was deep fear in his eyes. Recognizing Jason, Neil began to call from inside the car. Jay, Jay, help me. They're going to kill me. Hartwig pulls the cruiser over. He demanded to know who Roy was. Jason, now struck with fear, gives them the name of his cousin, Tracy Horse. Tracy had no history with the law, and as Jason also happened to have run away from his group home, he was not about to put himself in danger. Hartwig, unconvinced by his answer, asks Jason for a middle name and birth date. Jason provides both, having memorized his cousin's information for just such an occasion. Hartwig then asks if Jason knows Neil. Jason lies and says he has no idea who the person in the back of the car is. Hartwig and Sanger, seemingly satisfied with Jason's answers, begin to drive away. Jason's last sight of Neil alive is his petrified face in the back of the police cruiser. On the morning of November 25th, both Stella and Patricia know something is wrong. Neil was supposed to come back home. Neil was as good as his word. They called around to friends and family, hoping that somebody would have seen him. No luck. At 9 a.m. on November 29th, four days after Neil had last been seen, two laborers find the frozen body of Neil Stonechild in a field on the outskirts of Saskatoon. He was wearing only a thin bomber jacket, a t-shirt, jeans, and white socks. One of his sneakers was missing. His body appeared slightly curled up, as though when he fell for the final time, he was trying to preserve what little warmth he could. It appeared he had walked for some distance with only one shoe, in bitterly cold weather, outside the city limit. Saskatoon police services were notified and appeared on the scene. Nobody actually seemed to have the foresight to declare the area a crime scene. One of the officers who was assigned to follow footprints in the snow didn't even bother to follow the oldest tracks, but rather kept closer to the body. The coroner on the scene 
a man named Brian Fern, had medical training, but had never taken any specializations to actually be a coroner. But Fern noticed that there were two scratches on the bridge of Neil's nose and a cut to his lower lip. They all concluded at the scene, but there was no sign of foul play. Someone did call in for the canine unit to come and search for the missing shoe. The dogs came in and searched for a grand total of 15 minutes. Then they all gave it up as a lost cause. And to date, that other shoe has never been found. Reporters arrived on scene. One journalist reported quickly back to the Star Phoenix about a young male body found frozen. Neil's older brother, Marcel, read the headline and knew in his heart it was Neil, long before any police officer thought to inform his family. Neil's body was brought to the pathologist's office, Dr. Jack Adolph. Dr. Adolph was actually unable to do the autopsy on the 29th because the body was still too frozen. He had to wait until the 30th. In the meantime, Sergeant Jarvis was assigned to Neil's case. Depending on who you ask, Jarvis was either a meticulous notekeeper who was a very good cop, or he was a lazy cop who often took shortcuts to avoid doing the work. I'll leave you to think which one he was on this case. Some issues. Number one, Jarvis never went to visit the scene. He saw no point in going to a frozen field. Number two, even if Jarvis normally took meticulous notes, in this particular case, the notes he did provide can best be described as atrocious. Important details are missing, as we will come to understand later. When the autopsy was finally completed, Jarvis didn't even bother to look at Neil's face. He didn't even bother to correct the autopsy notes, which continued to misidentify Neil as Leo Stonechild. He agreed with Dr. Adolph that Neil had frozen to death and recorded in his notes that there was no trauma to be attributed to the body. Except that there absolutely was. We've already talked about the two scratches on his face and the cut to his lower lip. When Jason found out that Neil had died, he immediately asked to speak to the inspector in charge of the case. Jarvis dutifully went over to see Jason and asked for his statement. They spoke for a couple of hours. In that time, Jarvis took zero notes. But Jarvis did ask Roy to write out a statement. But in this statement, there's no indication that the last time Jason saw Neil, he was in the back of a police cruiser. What? You might be asking. Wasn't that Jason's whole point of talking to Jarvis? Well, Jarvis evidently had an unusual methodology for writing witness statements. You see, he would have them write out the gist of what had happened, and then Jarvis would go back later and fill in any pertinent details, whether that was by asking questions and scribbling those answers in the margins, or then checking his own notes. His own notes, you may remember, that he did not take when speaking to Jason. Jarvis, at the end, assured Jason that he would follow up with him. He never did. All told, Jarvis spent a grand total of 20 hours on Neil Stonechild's case. In those 20 hours, he followed up with Hartwig and Stinger to confirm that they had attended the scene at the apartment complex and then closed the case there, naming Neil GOA or gone on arrival. No further follow-up was done. Jarvis did not bother sending out Neil's clothing for analysis, nor did he see the point in looking at any of the crime scene photos. Jarvis decided that there was one of two reasons Neil ended up in that field. 
Either he had some enemies within the First Nations community that dropped him off there, or he wanted to turn himself into the correctional center outside of town. Except that that correctional center was only for adults, and Neil was still 17. Neil also had enough experience within the system to know that if he wanted to turn himself in, the place to go would be back to his group home, not the correctional center. But Jarvis didn't bother investigating any of that. He closed Neil's case on December 5th, saying that unless pertinent information came forward, this was just an accident. The body was then released for a funeral. At the visitation, Neil's family was horrified to see him. His beautiful long hair had been unevenly cut. His sister found bumps along Neil's skull that made her suspect foul play. Neil's nose was swollen, still with those awful lacerations across the bridge. And Marcel, seeing that, swore that Neil's nose was broken. They also noticed what appeared to be handcuff marks on the inside of his wrist. The family repeatedly asked for Neil's clothing to be returned to them. Saskatoon Police Service never did. And eventually, the SPS threw out the evidence. Any DNA that might have been on it went with it. Anyone who knew Neil knew that he was nearly always wearing a baseball cap. He'd been wearing one the night he disappeared. The police didn't look for it. In fact, Marcel spent longer looking for that hat than Jarvis did investigating his brother's death. The family reached out to an indigenous officer in the force, a cop named Ernie Lutet, who promised to look into the case. He ended up making a copy of the 21-page report and investigating as much as he could into the case. It didn't go very far. Eventually, after getting so much pushback from the police, Ernie had to abandon the case. And so things continued. In 1997, an officer named Brian Trainer had an article in the weekly Sunday edition of the Star Phoenix. It was an often humorous look at some of the things police officers went through. That summer, Trainer wrote an article that seemed to mock the situation about Starlight Tours, in which drunken indigenous men would ask to be taken to see the queen, the highest power in the land. There they would be dropped at the power station. Trainer even ended his article by saying, One fewer guest for breakfast! Later, the SPS will deny ever hearing about the possibility of starlight tours. Let's fast forward to January 2000. On January 29th, the body of 25-year-old Rodney Nastis was discovered close to the Queen Elizabeth power station. Much like in Neil's case, little in the way of investigation was done. It was believed that Rodney had simply wandered away from a house party while intoxicated and ended up freezing to death in the field. He'd been found by a local politician out for her morning jog. She came upon his body, clad in nothing but a pair of black sweatpants and sneakers. Police would eventually find his shirt and camo jacket a few hundred meters away. The likeliest scenario for Rodney's lack of clothing is something called paradoxical undressing. In the later stages of hypothermia, the mind deludes itself into believing that it is too hot and victims will begin to remove life-saving clothing in an effort to cool down. One person who was deeply disturbed by Nastus's discovery was Daryl Knight. Nastus had been found only about a kilometer from where Daryl had been dropped off, and Daryl's account of that night is horrific. 
On the night of January 28th, Knight was attending a party. The party had started to get out of hand, with people beginning to fight, so Daryl decided to get out while he still could. Despite not having had much to drink, Daryl was spotted by the police stumbling in the road. Now, the stumbling was due to an issue stemming from childhood illnesses. A vision problem in one eye left Daryl prone to falling over. The party that Daryl had left caused enough of a disturbance for police to be called to the scene. Officers Ken Munson and Dan Hatchin arrived, and they were two veteran officers who'd been partners for six years. They checked in at the scene and then noticed Daryl stumbling around. Daryl, who was no fan of the police, having had multiple encounters for intoxication and other indiscretions, then proceeded to give the officers the finger, and then bang on their car a couple of times. This was enough for the officers to drag him into the back of their car. Once ensconced there in the back seat, Knight was told that he was just going for a little ride. This frightened him. Indigenous people had long whispered about Starlight Tours and the men who ended up freezing to death outside the city. The car continued to drive, eventually ending up a couple of kilometers away from the Queen Elizabeth power station. There, according to Daryl, the following conversation took place. And please note, the following passage contains both vile and racist language. Cops. Daryl, get out. Get out, you fucking Indian. Daryl. I'll freeze to death out there, you guys. Cops. Well, that's your fucking problem. Hatchin and Munson drive off after tossing Knight out of the car and removing his handcuffs. As they do this, Knight struggled to make out their cruiser number. He ends up giving the wrong cruiser number when his statement is taken. Knight credits his survival, in part to having been familiar with the area. He'd biked around the power station as a child and teen, so he knew how to get there from his position. It was that, and of course the guard that heard him banging on the door that enabled him to survive. On February 3rd, only a handful of days after Rodney Nastis's body had been discovered, the body of 30-year-old Lawrence Wagner was found near railroad tracks outside the city. He'd not been seen alive since January 31st. Lawrence Kim Wagner was described by everyone who knew him as a gentle soul who absolutely hated conflict. He grew up in a loving family and was pursuing a social work degree so that he could go back and help his mother's reservation. He was always willing to do whatever he could to help others. But Lawrence suffered from mental health issues. By his late teens, he was injecting morphine to help him with his frequent panic attacks. Twice, he had been diagnosed for psychosis brought on by drug use. Still, Lawrence was trying his best regularly attending his college-level classes. Up until the weekend he went missing, he'd been staying in a halfway house. He was asked to leave that halfway house after breaking into his leader's room and stealing money for drugs. But even then, the group leader of the halfway home was hesitant to let Lawrence go because he was so wonderful to her, and because the only other place he had to go was the home of an acquaintance Lawrence knew from the drug world. But off Lawrence went. On January 31st, Lawrence actually called the police for help. The acquaintance and his girlfriend were having such a violent fight that Lawrence worried for his safety. After the police came and broke it up, 
Lawrence proceeded to smoke a good deal of marijuana to help him calm down. Unfortunately, the THC had the opposite effect. Lawrence ended up running out of the apartment with no shoes on. A few hours after he'd left the apartment, he turned up at the home of a distant relative. That relative was just about to go to bed when she heard Lawrence pounding on the door, demanding pizza. She and her daughter did not let him inside, neither woman having recognized Lawrence. And so off he went in the direction of the hospital across the way. At the hospital, he was seen by two classmates and another witness getting into the back of a police cruiser. The classmates who knew Wagner were struck by the aggression with which the police were handling the shoeless, gentle-hearted man. They would never see Lawrence alive again. The Lawrence Wagner investigation suffered many of the same issues as the others. At the scene where Lawrence was discovered, the officer in charge sent the most warmly dressed people to march up and down the railway tracks to find any evidence. Of course, in so doing, the officers ended up destroying any footprint evidence that may have been left behind. In fact, the scene ended up so trampled, officers were forced to make a diagram description of the scene. Because Lawrence had been left out in the elements for so many days, he was frozen solidly into the ground. A group of city workers had to be called in to help the police erect a tent and use heaters to remove him from the ground. One of those workers, a foreman called Brian Dalkey, ended up getting a good look at Lawrence as he put up one of the tarps. Brian noticed that near Lawrence's right kidney was the unmistakable imprint of a hiking boot. After a few hours, when they were finally able to turn him around, Dalkey also noticed a horrific bruise marring Lawrence's forehead and eye. Looked to Dalkey like Lawrence had sustained a pretty bad blow to the head. Was any of this in the police's notes? No. Officers decided that Lawrence had walked all the way out there in a drug-induced haze and left it at that. And in a reversal of what had happened to Neil's clothes, Lawrence's articles, also never analyzed, were actually given back to his family. From there, following Cree tradition, the articles were distributed to relatives, and any evidentiary value was now gone. Perhaps the worst of this was the two pairs of socks. Only the outer socks showed any wear. With two deaths of First Nations men in the space of a week, both found frozen in fields, reporters grew interested in the story. Dan Zakreski, a reporter for the Star Phoenix, spoke to the relatives who spoke about Lawrence ending up on their doorstep, and the classmates who told Dan that the last time they'd seen Lawrence, he was being forced into the back of a police cruiser. But what shocked Dan the most was that across the board, not a single person that Lawrence knew had been contacted by the police, and this was over a week since his body had been discovered. Why were the police not interviewing Lawrence's friends and family? Well, they had a crisis unfolding in their halls. You see, only a couple of days after Lawrence was found, Daryl had been driving around Saskatoon with his uncle when they were pulled over for a seatbelt violation. As Officer Ehalt, the man who pulled them over, was writing out the ticket, Daryl's uncle asked him if he knew anything about the freezing deaths, explaining that his nephew had almost been one of the victims. Ehalt listened in astonishment 
as Daryl explained his own starlight to her. When Daryl finished, Ehalt asked if he told anybody, to which Daryl replied, Who's going to believe me? Ehalt left the scene, disturbed, and had a meeting with his chief. The chief demanded that Ehalt get Daryl back in and give a proper statement. So Ehalt returned to Daryl a few days later, asking him to come down to Central Station. Daryl initially rejected the idea, claiming he wasn't about to let the cops finish the job. Eventually, Daryl did relent and went to give his statement. In it, he claimed that the cruiser number of the officers who had abandoned him out there was number 57. Those officers were immediately pulled off duty. After a little more investigation by the SPS, who seemed to have no trouble actually investigating this part of the story, Hatchin and Munson were suspended and interviewed about their involvement with Daryl that night. Both decided to go with the defense that, sure, they had Daryl in their car, but Daryl had asked to be dropped off in the middle of nowhere, kilometers away from civilization, in sub-zero temperatures. Sure. With two deaths and now a witness, the story got bigger than the Saskatoon Police Service. The RCMP was called in to start an inquiry into the deaths and the assault on Daryl Knight. Neil Stonechild was not an initial part of their inquiry. It was Zakreski who went digging in the archives of the Star Phoenix along with his colleagues, and a colleague was the one who found the articles about Neil Stonechild, including one in which his family members argued that the police had not been doing enough to figure out what happened to Neil. The case was deeper than those reporters had initially believed. Not only did they add Neil to the list, but two other Indigenous men, Lloyd Joseph Dustyhorn and Darcy Dean Ironchild, were added as well. Lloyd had been brought home, still intoxicated from police custody, one bitterly cold night. Unable to get his key to work, Lloyd froze to death on his stoop. Darcy had been in police custody, clearly high, when police decided they'd be better off just bringing him home. Had Darcy been brought to the hospital, it's likely he'd still be alive today. As the story about Daryl Knight, Lawrence, and Rodney circulated around Saskatoon, Jason Roy decided it was time to talk to his uncle, noted lawyer Don Worm. Worm was already representing Daryl Knight, and now he knew he had an incredibly important witness in his nephew. The story about Starlight Tours began grabbing international attention after the Washington Post published a story about the cases on February 28th. Around the same time, Corporal Jack Warner was pulled off the Lawrence Wagner case in the RCMP inquiry and told to focus on Neil's story. Warner's job was not an easy one. Firstly, only a couple of years earlier, the SPS had undergone a major cull. While most records were supposed to be kept for ten years, any death ruled non-suspicious could have its file removed and destroyed after only three. The Neil Stonechild file was gone. The living witnesses were having struggles of their own. Jason was being followed by unmarked police cars, which led to growing paranoia. Jason would eventually flee two hours north just to be kept safe. On March the 4th, Daryl Knight was in a bar, having a carefree evening. As he made his way into the washroom, an unknown assailant came up behind Daryl and stabbed him in the kidney. 
Police chalked that one up to bar misbehavior. In going through the files that he did have, Jack Warner realized he needed to talk to Sergeant Jarvis. Warner reached him by phone in Burnaby, B.C., where Jarvis had moved after retiring in 1993. In that first phone call, Jarvis claimed to have a terrible memory and informed Warner that well, he destroyed all of his notebooks when he retired. In the second phone call, Jarvis then remembered that, oh no, he'd actually handed all his notebooks over to the Saskatoon Police Service. He had not destroyed them. Bingo. Warner went looking and found the notebook, and then was surprised to learn that a copy of the Stone Child investigation did exist, thanks to Ernie. Warner was able to take a look at the autopsy photos. They were shocking. Warner then showed the alarming photos to other officers in his RCMP detachment in Regina. All agreed with Warner. It looked to them as though Neil had been beaten up by handcuffs. Warner ended up going to a photogrammetry expert, who was also able to conclude that the marks on Neil's face and wrist were consistent with handcuffs. On September 11, 2001, the trial of Hatchin and Munson began. In fact, because it was 9-11, the jury was actually pulled to see if the emotional turmoil of what was happening in New York was enough to sway their feelings. But the jury was determined to see the case through. Hatchson and Munson would eventually be sentenced to 10 months imprisonment for unlawful confinement. The maximum sentence they could have received was 10 years. They were both out within four months. Apparently, the loss of their jobs and reputations was punishment enough. In a rare turn on Canadian disasters, though, this case did spark an inquiry. Hartwig, Jarvis, and Brad Seeger had to give testimony. Singer was the only one to take a polygraph test about the events of the night Neil Stonechild went missing. He did not pass that polygraph. Jarvis and Hartwig could show off their incredible memories when it came to certain details or other cases, but seemed to be, quote-unquote, unable to recall much of anything when it came to Neil. Note, the worst example of the do-not-recall to me is that on the stand, Hartwig could describe in excruciating detail the position and number of stoplights it would take to get from the Snowberry Downs apartment complex to the Queen Elizabeth power plant. He just couldn't remember if Neil was in the car with him. Jason Roy was also called to testify. And despite Hartwig and Sanger's lawyers deliberately trying to intimidate him, Roy was able to tell the same facts he'd been repeating for 13 years. It felt a little bit like a weight had been lifted off his chest. After a few months of testimony, Justice Wright, who was in charge of the inquiry, released his report. I'm going to read his summary findings for you here. Number one, Neil Stonechild was the subject of two complaints of causing a disturbance on the evening of November 24th, 1990. That would be the 7-Eleven and the apartment complex. Number two, Constable Bradley Sanger and Constable Larry Hartwig, members of the Saskatoon Police Service, were dispatched at 11.51 p.m. to investigate a complaint about Neil Stonechild at Snowberry Downs. Number three. Hartwig and Sanger arrived at Snowberry Downs within minutes and carried out a search of the area. 
In the course of doing so, they encountered Neil Stonechild. Number four, the constables took Stonechild into custody. Number five, in the early morning hours of November 25th, 1990, Stonechild died of cold exposure in a field in the northwest industrial area outside of Saskatoon. Number six, Neil Stonechild's frozen body was found in a field in the northwest industrial area outside of Saskatoon on November 29th, 1990. Number seven, there were injuries and marks on Stonechild's body that were likely caused by handcuffs. Number eight, the Saskatoon Police Service carried out an investigation. The preliminary investigation properly identified a number of suspicious circumstances surrounding the death. Number nine, the principal investigator assigned to the case, Morality Sergeant Keith Jarvis, carried out a superficial and totally inadequate investigation of the death of Neil Stonechild. Number 10. Jarvis was informed by Jason Roy that Neil Stonechild was in the custody of the Saskatoon Police Service when Roy last saw Stonechild on the night of November 24th, 25th, 1990. Jarvis did not record this important information in his notebook or his final investigation report. Number 11. Jarvis and his superior, Staff Sergeant Theodore Bud Johnson, concluded the investigation almost immediately and closed the file on December 5, 1990, without answering the many questions that surrounded the stone child disappearance and death. Number 12. Jarvis dismissed important information provided to him by two members of the Saskatoon Police Service relating to the stone child disappearance and death. Number 13. The chiefs and deputy chiefs of police who successively headed the Saskatoon Police Service rejected or ignored reports from the Stonechild family members and investigative reporters for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix that cast serious doubts on the conduct of the Stonechild investigation. The self-protective and defensive attitudes exhibited by the senior levels of the police service continued, notwithstanding the establishment of an RCMP task force to investigate the suspicious deaths of a number of Aboriginal persons and the abduction of an Aboriginal man. These same attitudes were manifested by certain members of the Saskatoon Police Service during the inquiry. Justice Wright's findings were a huge win for the Stonechild family and for Don Worm, who represented them. Hartwig and Sanger were suspended from duty, and their suspension lasted until they were able to retire. Neither faced any jail time. But perhaps most importantly, Wright's ruling still stands, and it was quite firm against the Saskatoon Police Service. So despite the SBS having raised several appeals, the Supreme Court of Canada decided to deny them the final one. In 2015, Justice Wright, now snowbirding in Palm Springs, would say that that inquiry was the highlight of his career, and that he was proud to say that no complaints against the SPS had been brought forward since. Ah, if only. See, in 2018, Ken Thompson filed another complaint against the SPS, arguing that he'd been taken to the outskirts of town and forced to walk back. And that was a case of mistaken identity. So even in the time of GPS, it appears that this may still be a problem. I don't think many people enjoy being cold. And even though I would always rather be cold over hot, 
I still can't imagine being so bone-chillingly cold that paradoxical undressing might be a factor. So the next time you head out into a brisk Canadian winter, pause for a moment and maybe spare a thought or two for the victims of the Starlight Tours. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters. True North Strong and Destructive. <laughs> <laughs>